I'm Chris Lindstrom, and this is the Food About Town podcast. In episode 78 of the Food About Town podcast, I'm bringing you part one of my interview with Evan Dawson from WXXI and his very popular show Connections, which plays every day from 12 till 2. Um, I was really happy to get Evan over on the podcast. Uh, We did about two hours total, so I split this up into two parts. Uh, The first part uh, is focusing on uh, Finger Lakes Wines, and we had plenty of diversions along the way. But Evan has a strong interest in the Finger Lakes region, and he wrote a book a few years back called Summer in a Glass. So that was kind of the impetus to our discussion, and yeah, we went on a bunch of different directions. Um, Came over, we did a late night recording, and I had just a great time talking with him. Uh, This is one of my favorite episodes I've ever done, uh, this one in part two. So I I hope you guys enjoyed as much as I did. Um, I'm really proud of this one, so share it out on social media. I think you get a different side of Evan that you get on the radio and that I think he's put out in public. Um, So I I think this is really special. So share it out for me. Let other people know it's out there. Um, Find me on social media, Food About Town on Facebook, at Stromy on Twitter and Instagram. And if you enjoyed this, let Evan know as well. And he's uh, at Evan Dawson on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great time with this one. Strawberries, cherries, and an angel's kiss in spring. My summer wine is really made from all these things. I walked in town on silver spurs that jingled too. A song that I had only sang to just a few. She saw my silver spurs and said, let's pass some time. And I will give to you summer wine. Oh, summer wine. All right, so it's a late night here in Rochester. And I've got a guest across from me. Why don't you introduce yourself, Mr. Guest? Oh, you're going to make me do the introduction? I, I, I always do. The, I let the I guest wanna, do the introduction. Uh, yeah, but th- this is the one time that I get to be interviewed. So, in, oh, okay. Anyway, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm Evan Dawson. I'm a professional, uh, l- could be a Little League wiffle ball pitcher is what I feel like. I've got a five-year-old, <laughs> and that's what, uh, that is what I do best these days. You're is, a backstop. Oh, I am an amazing wiffle ball pitcher. W- whatever your speed is. I can put it in there nine times out of ten. Like I should be a home run <laughs> derby pitcher. The problem is when I bat, I can't get myself to pitch to myself. Um, but I also host a talk show. I host, I've heard that. I host the daily afternoon talk show on the NPR station in Rochester and the Finger Lakes and WXXI and WEOS, and we have a little fun. Yeah. So that's, that's where I got to know you first. Um, but you've also, we're going to talk about it a bit later, you also wrote a book about the Finger Lakes wine scene. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read the whole title because I've got it in front of me. Okay. Summer in a Glass, the coming of age of winemaking in the Finger Lakes. Yeah, there's actually a story about the title, and I don't want to bore you, but do you want to hear it? Oh, I always want to hear boring all right, stories. So, all right, so <laughs> I, I submitted 25 possible book titles, and everyone got rejected. 25. Uh, as, I, as I recall, it was, it was roughly 25 titles, and... Um, how salacious can we get here? Are we allowed to get a little oh, 100%. fun? 100%. Okay, so... As much as we want. <laughs> so, so my publisher is a really good, really good guy, Carlo DeVito. I'm going to make Carlo listen to this. Uh, Carlo is a fantastic guy. He, he was uh, the vice president of Sterling Epicure, and I was the little fish in a big pond. They were publishing Kevin Zraeli, Matt Kramer, you know, B- Oz Clark, big wine writers and food writers, and I was this little guy doing a Finger Lakes book, and they needed a title. And so, so Carlos says, well, you know, g- give me a title that maybe riffs on the region and what it's about. So I'm thinking Finger Lakes, but it's more about the people. I, I, mine's not like a wine book. It's more about a, a book about people. I wanted to tell the stories of these interesting people that, you know, how in the hell did this German winemaker with 600 years of family history and who's never heard of Seneca Lake end up on Seneca Lake? That's what I wanted to figure out and, and kind of tell those stories as many biographies. So I thought, okay, 
Carlo wants something that's kind of a, a double meaning, a little riff. So one of them, for example, was what these fingers made. <laughs> you know, like the finger lakes, but yeah, also yeah. their hands. Of course. And he eventually sends me a note back that says, no more titles with finger in it. <laughs> I'm getting grossed out. <laughs> and, and I said, that's what you asked me for. I wasn't going in that direction. My mind is not in the gutter. Hello. Uh, but I gave up. Um, Lake Effect was one of the possible titles. Ooh, yeah, that's Lake really Lake. bad. Yeah, yeah. It's, ba- it's bad. Oh, I mean, I'm not even telling you the worst. Uh, <laughs> and eventually they said, we'll handle this, but they let me do the subtitle. So the subtitle was mine, and they chose... When, when they came back to me, they said, we're going to call it Summer in a Glass because there is part of uh, the, the introduction section of your book. That's a phrase that you used. And I said, you can't use that because everyone will think it's the most puffy, oh, airy, yeah. nothing book. You cannot call it Summer in a Glass. No one will buy it. <laughs> and it turns out this is why I will never be in the marketing division of anything. Yeah, and you know what? It's it's really not the right title for the book at all <laughs> in not, a lot of ways. Not really, Because, yeah. I mean, I, having read it, it's it's character study for so many characters in and around the finger lakes. I'm not, I'm not going to wait. I'm, we're we're going to talk about the book now. Cause it was, okay. It's a character study of so many fascinating people. And I think that's the part that grabbed me the most was how much it was really showing passion in these sub stories with a couple through lines. So you just used a word passion and uh, fun fact. There's um, 86,000 words in the book. Passion is not one of them. Really? That was intentional. I mean, that's I I applaud you for doing that because yeah. it's it's hard to read it without it screaming in your mind. That's passionate good, that, people. That's exa- that's the best compliment you can give me. And the reason that the word passion doesn't appear is my father was my editor before I had a publisher, and my father is a voracious reader, and he doesn't drink. And I had to write a book that would interest him. It couldn't just be technical wine and sort of boring stuff. It had to be good human interest stories. He's also a great writer, and he's very careful. Um, So he said to me, if you want to portray people as passionate, don't write the word passion. Convince me as a reader. If you have to tell me they're passionate... I will be wondering why you didn't convince me with the actual prose. So that stuck with me early on. And, and he's the kind of, of editor who, who starts excising a lot of adjectives. We dropped a lot of adjectives. <laughs> you will not see the word clearly or obviously. He says, if you have to tell me clearly, it's not that clear. Yeah. You know, he's just one of those kind of editors who's fantastic. Um, but the word passion does not exist in this book. And I, it means a lot to me to hear you say that it comes through because that was intentional that if it was if it was well written or well composed, people would find that, not without realizing I intentionally never have that word. So what? I'm just out of vacation. What did, What did your dad do? What was What was his profession? He's an attorney, and um, you know, and uh, just uh, all he wants to do in life is is read and read some more. I mean, he's he's impossible to buy for on holidays mm. because all he does is read, and any book he wants to read, he already owns. So. Uh, but he's a very good writer. He was the kind of guy who, in, in, when I was in college, I took, um, I think it was, you know, you know, journalism 104 or something like that first year. And we had these word quizzes where you would uh, have to distinguish between farther and further, uh, between and among, but also words that have common misunderstandings or commonly misused. And I got into a rhythm of just sending those to him, and that was his greatest joy in life. He was competing with me in college to see who would do better. Who, who is the most, uh, who's the most pedantic about these yeah. minor things? Yeah, he still sends me every day. My dad sends me an email uh, called Write to the Point, W-R-I-T-E, and it's written by an attorney, kind of for lawyers, but it's really written for writers, and it's, it just kind of breaks down common mistakes in English language. And to this day, five times a week, my father sends that to me. That's fantastic. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and it's, it's, weird, it's weird you say that, uh, removing the adjectives. Um, when I was doing... Not all adjectives, just a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I, when, I was, when I was writing more often, when I was doing reviews in the newspaper, that's something as a, you know, as a mediocre writer, uh, I have a technical mind. So I would... But I always tried to flower things up in the wrong way instead of leaving it as clear as possible. So I really appreciate that, and that removal of the extraneous 
Because you really get down to the meat of what you're trying to say. And I think my dad loved Hemingway, and Hemingway would not tolerate, like, you know, can I say bullshit? Oh, absolutely. You know, bullshit adjectives. And um, so, again, it's not that there's no adjectives, but but I've been in the exact same spot you've been, writing articles, and, and, and you, you really want to portray your experience with it. It's easy to to then, in retrospect, go back and say, man, that was just overdone. That was purple prose. I didn't need, I didn't need that. <laughs> yeah. I think it's the first thing it needs to go when it comes to that. And I started using, I think it was called Hemingway. It was an app on the online that showed you how long your sentences were and like, nope, too long. You're, you're butchering this. So I tried using that for a little while and I found it actually made it, made it a little more challenging in some ways to shorten kind of like a Twitter and writing your thing, just shortening what you're doing a little bit. Yeah. I'm also my favorite writer of, of my generation is the, um, I was going to say recently departed. I think it's been five years. Has it been five years? David Rakoff is my favorite writer. He was an essayist, uh, also a contributor to This American Life. Phenomenal yeah. storyteller. I mean, just yep. the way he, even I loved his verbal, the way he told his stories. It was so engaging. Yeah, and Rakoff taught me something really, really important, which is that um, I would read his essays, and I would write down words that I'd never heard, or, or I did not know the definition of and just try to grow my vocabulary because he was so descriptive, but not in a way that was trying to impress you. He just wrote in a sense, and I, and I heard him describe one time saying, he tries to write like he speaks, and he, and he spoke when he was alive. He died of cancer way too young. I think he was 47. Um, he, he, he spoke like he wrote, and he wrote like he spoke, and he had this incredible vocabulary, Incredible is the word I try to avoid, but it was to me it was incredible. Uh, but it wasn't a put on; it wasn't to try to impress you. And anything beyond your scope of vocabulary or experience, you shouldn't do. So occasionally, I would use a word, and my dad would sort of flag it, and he would get back to me and say, "I don't know here." And I would say, "Dad, I promise you, that's the first word that came to mind. I don't sit here and look up three dollar words." So there, there are times where. You know, if you do like one of those, what what grade level are you writing in? Like this chapter was fourth grade, you know, <laughs> but this chapter was eleventh grade. I don't know why, yeah. but um, but it's never to impress. And that's the Rackoff lesson. He did teach me my favorite word, and I this is so dumb, and I've never told this to anybody, Chris, but it's coming out to to throw me. I like it. Here we go. Uh, my favorite word in the English language I learned from Rackoff, and I used it in the first chapter of the book almost as a tribute to him, and he'll never know that, and he's gone, but it's tintinabulation. And tintinabulation really means the jangling of metal, but to me it was also the sound of metal clanging on, on a really hard rainstorm on a metal roof, a tin roof. Yeah. Um, and I love that. It's like this onomatopoeia. I love tintinabulation, um, you know, and, and to me it flows right off the tongue now. I'm used to it. Uh, so it's a bit of a $3 word, but it's also my tribute to David Rackoff. I appreciate that. And I, I think, you know, I, I, I really enjoy that he's your favorite writer. And for me, I, I tend to tend to gravitate towards the audio medium. <clears throat> yeah. um, but there was something something about him that was so, I never felt like it was a put on. I felt. Exactly. I, that, <clears throat> I think that was the thing I really enjoyed about him the most. Um, like you, you could hear some of the other contributors. It's It seemed a bit, it was a bit of a put on. His story seemed so authentic to him yeah easy right yeah and it it was that easiness is hard it's hard to manufacture if it's not truly you but it's so hard to get there if you're not (laughs) i i I actually think that's a really wise way of describing it and i think people the audience whether it's in an audio format or in a literary format generally has a pretty good sense of that yeah if you're trying too hard if you if it seems like you're not naturally just telling a story so this is just a long-winded way of saying that my dad also was very good at, at, at helping me see that you don't have to overdo it. Yeah. And you don't have to over-adjective that what you have to do is tell effective stories. And then, then, then the reader will eventually say to you, you wrote about these passionate people without realizing you never used that word. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm glad we took that long tangent because that's, that's my favorite part about doing this kind of thing. Yeah, that was we fun. Can, we can do the long tangents and just mess around and you come out to those weird places that I 
I never would have thought to bring up David Rakoff today. Well, that's, but that that's but look, I, I interview it. for a living, man, and you're good at this. This is fun. Let's um, just let's let's do this for like three hours. Also, this is the <laughs> first time I'm used to drinking water. So for anybody who's like he's sort of gulping a lot, or what's kind of going on? Oh yeah, uh, you have this great beer in front of me. In, oh, absolutely, in this beautiful glass, and I'm just not going to be afraid to be drinking it. So. No, I mean this. This is what podcasts are all about. We've got especially this podcast. We've got beautiful, beautiful Vermont beers in front of us. Yes, it's awesome. And yeah, we're going to be enjoying and sipping them. Hold on. Yeah, that's good radio, man. Just make them think of that. There you go. There's, there's the noise. You got to get the <laughs> sip noise in there. So, and again, not to not to lap at you too much, but the I think what I what one of the things I enjoyed the most about the book was how much it felt like you in the best possible way with also me learning a lot about you and how you act in different situations because you know, I've, I've you know, been on your show a couple times, seen you in social situations a few times here and there, not a ton, but it never felt like it wasn't you in the book, but I learned more about the different ways you interact with people at the same time. So that was really engaging on that front as well. Well, thanks. And, and I will just say for people who haven't read the book, um, I get a little sheepish talking about it because like, well, read the book. And I'm a terrible self-promoter. <laughs> but, um, but I will say that what, what you're saying um, means a lot. Uh, but I, I, I have a follow-up question for you, not, oh, to become, not to become the interviewer. But, oh, but, I'm but, but let me first back it up and say, this book would never have been published in the structure that it was if I didn't go about it, I'm about to tell another long, boring story. But I'm excited about that. That's, why we, that's what we're here for. Absolutely. That's what we're here for. So Summer in a Glass came about because I, I had covered the, the Finger Lakes wine industry a, as a reporter, and I would come back to Rochester wine stores, and I would see like Bully Hill, Red Cat. I would see, um, you know, may, maybe Dr. Frank, Herman Weimer, but not a lot else. Certainly Bully Hill and Red Cat. And I'm going, wow, this is not the updated story. I'm, I'm meeting all these people from around the world. How come their stories aren't out there? How come people haven't pulled this together? So I kind of thought, there's, I think there's a book here. And at the time, this is like 2007, 2008, I had been reading a lot of wine books. Uh, I, was, I read a book called Passion on the Vine, <laughs> Passion in the Title, right, there you go. by Sergio Esposito, uh, that I really liked. Uh, Reflections of a Wine Merchant by Neil Rosenthal is a seminal work. It's fantastic. Of course, Adventures on the Wine Trail by Kermit Lynch, 1989, which I intentionally did not want to read until I got done with the book because I got scared that I was going to copy it. Mm. But I may have kind of like dug into it and then it was like, wow, pull it back. Don't, this is too good. But I was, you know, kind of dabbling and I thought, there's something here for the Finger Lakes. I just want to do it on the personal side. And so, I had talked to my uncle in Jamestown. My uncle is a, a, a retired state assemblyman and a, a, a Vietnam veteran. He had written a book called A Hometown Went to War. He interviewed the 30 surviving service members of World War II who lived in Jamestown to get their experiences to understand what World War II was to them, but also as survivors what it was in later years. Stephen Ambrose writes his forward, and he couldn't get it published. So he self-published it. You know, spent thousands of dollars to do that. He didn't, you know, people don't write books these days to get rich unless you're Jonathan Franzen. And we can debate why <laughs> that guy got rich. But anyway. The whole uh, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, so, you know, so he writes this book and he self-publishes it. And, and I thought it was great. So I, I called him and I said, Uncle Raleigh, like, you know, I'm, I'm, tell me about the publishing industry. And he said, well, the publishing industry has changed. They don't want to fund and pay for ideas They'd rather you come to them with something that's mostly done because they don't have to pay for it. I mean, they have to edit it, but they're not going to pay. They're not going to say, well, I like your idea. Here's some money to go do this. Now, you want to go out on your own and do it? And I said, well, good. I'm stubborn enough that I'd want to do it my way anyway. And I figure I'm going to self-publish. So if I get lucky, I get lucky, but I will do it my way. So I just started writing the book without a publisher, without an agent. And I just did not know how to do it other than the way I did it, which is, I wrote it in the first person because I was meeting all these people. I was experiencing all of these things. I was traveling a lot to different events. But there was something in their past that clicked and brought them here or brought them back here 
And so each chapter starts, I think just about every chapter starts with a, a third-person backstory that takes you to a point in their life that was the change point that, that either brought them here or, or kind of set things in motion. And then it transitions to first person in the main chapter. I had never read a book in that structure. I just didn't know how else to do it. And no one was there to tell me no. <laughs> so when I finally had a publisher, they admitted, we probably wouldn't have let you do this, but you're mostly done, so what are we going to do? And so uh, as a consequence of that, I became sort of a character in the book because I'm there and I'm telling you what I'm experiencing from my perspective. But I hope, and here's where my question to you comes mm. in, I hope it wasn't heavy-handed because uh, my wife and I traveled a lot. We did a lot of remarkable things with people who really let us in. But I didn't want us to be... I mean, it was about them and not us. We were hopefully just a vehicle to tell their stories. Yeah, I, I think that did come through because I think it added a little... It added some character to it. And plenty of characters in the book. I want to get into that in a minute because mm -hmm. I, I love characters in life. But I, I thought it added a little bit of, it added a personal nature to it, and not in a really nice way, is the little side anecdotes. It's the, it's the little sly comments on the side that kind of, kind of grabbed me. I mean, I was, I was reading next to Adirondack Lakes, so it was hard not to get, to feel a little romantic about the whole thing. Sure. And it, I read this book at a time when I'm getting more into wine, so it was like the perfect time for me to read it. And to see, I, I think, again, to overuse the word passion, but how much I think some of your trepidations, some of your nervousness really made it more engaging in that in its own way. Yeah. I mean, like I would have been a total asshole if I wrote it today. <laughs> 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 no, I mean like a lot of this goes back eight, nine years when I was a lot less confident. And today, yeah. I, I, today I would just not be bearable, but I was much more humble then. And you know, and today I'm just not, it's hard to, I'm hard to take. Well, you know what? I heard you interviewing the mayor of Rochester oh, I don't know what you're talking two about. days ago, and you know what? I think you're absolutely right. You're unbearable, and you unbearable. ruined everything. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> listen, listen. Please don't take me down that road. I respect the mayor, and you know we, we had a conversation. I don't want to go down that road. I will say it was a slightly different time in my life, and um, what made me nervous or trepidatious at times was knowing that these people, a lot of these winemakers opened up the door in in sort of an industry sense. They let me into a lot of really awesome events and private tastings and peeled it all back. And they also let me into their lives. And yeah, I, you know, I, I I wanted to be respectful of them. So yeah, I, honestly, I, I think you're picking up on what was what was there, what I was experiencing. Yeah, and I, I find that as an interesting comment on the side. Um, how much your confidence? How much confidence changes over time? I, I'm hoping I'm mostly kidding because I mean I like to be, I like to think of myself as very humble, and, and there's a great song that um, my father, also for his brother on his brother's 40th birthday, he got him a video of it, and the lyrics are, "Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way." Yeah, absolutely. I look at myself in the mirror because I get better looking each day. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy. So I do want to be humble. Um, no, I, I, but I've written a lot more about wine in the last decade. So this was early in my quasi-professional wine writing career, and that contributed to occasionally my hesitation in these events. Yeah, well, I think that's the kind of thing that does come with time is this you become more confident in the topic, whether yeah. I mean, whether it's food, whether it's wine, whether it's whatever. You just become more comfortable behind the stick. I mean, whether you're talking on the radio, talking on a podcast, whatever. It's weird how much you take your comfortability for granted once you've gotten it. Um, it's weird. I, I'll see people come in. I'm sure you see it every day. People come into the studio and they're uncomfortable sitting in front of a microphone. They're uncomfortable putting their, you know, putting their face right up to it. And it's weird sometimes how much you take it for granted once you've gotten there. Do you enjoy talking to someone who keeps their mouth right near the microphone. Oh, always. Do, do you have people who talk like this and you're like all the time. You're in an echo chamber. <laughs> Get on the mic. And that's this the first it's, but it's it's weird how you change the way you move your body. Yeah. But I mean we're this is inside so it, stuff. So it's, yeah. it, no, it's anything in life. It's anything in life that you gain confidence in, but what my hope is is 
you may gain in any industry. If you are a writer, if you are a plumber, if you are whatever you are, but hopefully you still retain humility. Yeah. And um, so this book, fortunately for me, came at a time where I had to be humble because I was so inexperienced, and these people were pulling me into their lives. So, so I mean, what? So young into wine writing, but what? What? What brought it into your head that, like, hey, I'm writing about wine, but I'm going to do a book. Like, what? What kind of? What kind of? I mean, how did that? How did the wine bring it into you? I yeah. mean, your your experience with wine. How did that? come into you so you like hey I have to write this I have to go meet all these people yeah well like, what did wine do to you to get you there yeah so um so I grew up writing books I mean I I wrote a um Mike Komaransky Como and I in in seventh and eighth grade wrote a 284 page book by hand on line paper and it was a a, a science fiction comedy so there's that awesome uh, yeah yeah um I, I was I was sort of writing at a very early age in long form ways, and I always wanted to write a book. And then this just became the excuse to actually write it because I mostly didn't care about this stuff. I just wanted to say I was an author. That's not totally true, <laughs> but I did want to write a book. And, and it was at a time in my life where I was starting to really fall in love with wine, and I saw this industry that was just undercovered or misunderstood or all of the stories were outdated. You know, people just weren't aware of these fascinating people who'd come mostly from around the world but also from our own region um, to, to build up this industry and take it to the next level. And the extraordinary personal sacrifice behind it and sometimes a love story, sometimes a, a tragedy. And, I, and I'm thinking, this feels like a book to me. This feels like the, every time I meet somebody and I actually get them to tell me their story personally and, and kind of let their guard down, I, I, I think people would want to read this. So yeah. um, it's the kind of thing that you go into and you think, I think there's a book here, but you're not really sure. And I can tell you the first 10,000 words I wrote, I went back and read and I went, oh my God, this is awful. <laughs> I mean, and, and it didn't make the book, everything had changed. I mean, that, that was largely gone. It was awful. But the last 30 or 40,000 were, were pretty consistently what I was going for. And it took a while to get into that rhythm of figuring out what you want to do to the extent where, um, I, you know, the book is coming together and I'm not going to, I knew I was not going to finish every chapter in order because we're going out to different events. I had this rough outline of the people I wanted to write about, but I knew it would change over time as I got to know them. Some people would make the cut, some people would not, for various reasons. I wanted every chapter to be its own narrative arc, start to finish, essentially, as its own mini-biography. And so it's coming together in drips and drips. The first chapter that got done was the first chapter, Johannes Reinhardt. And so I send it to my dad in Cleveland. I get a voicemail the next day from him, and the voicemail, I can still remember it almost word for word. Ev, about that chapter. <laughs> I'm surprised at how much I liked it. Give me a call. I've got some edits for you. And that was it. He was surprised. He doesn't care about wine. He doesn't drink. But he liked, he, he cared about the person and the story. So I'm going, wow, my dad's in. Like, there's a book here. Yeah. The second chapter I finished that, and sent it to him a week later is not the second chapter of the book. And he left me a voicemail, and he said, do you remember how much I liked the first chapter? That is how much I hated this chapter. Do, do not call me unless you have at least 90 minutes. It's a disaster. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, and he killed that chapter. Yeah. Now, the chapter I'm talking about is now one of my favorite chapters in the book. I had gotten so down in the weeds of the technical wine stuff and, mm. and, and, and all of the sort of the scientific detail that I lost the personal story. And he was the editing spirit of that. He always pulled it back to that. And, um, but he convinced me pretty early on, yes, you have a book, but you have to make sure it is about people, not wine. Yeah. Well, on the wine side of things, what, what brought you into... What brought you into... Um, Enjoying wine. I mean, what what was what was yeah. the thing that brought you into it? That sort of was the birth of this. Yeah. Idea? So um, so I, I answer that in a couple of ways. First of all, when I was uh, 
dating the woman I married. She grew up in Penyan. We'd come up here, and I didn't know anything about wine. And I was, I was intimidated. You know, I mean, I didn't know the industry. I remember I, I, I dated a girlfriend in college, and I wanted to make a nice meal, and I went to the store. It was in Ohio, so you could buy wine in grocery stores. And I was like, what is something nice? And they're like two words. White Zinfandel. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. Classic. You know, so that was the extent of my knowledge. And, and by the way, white Zin drinkers in the audience, I'm not dogging you. There's nothing wrong with that if that's your thing. Uh, it's, it's, but, you know, it's not necessarily the most serious stuff in the world. I didn't have any knowledge. I was amazed at how disarmingly easy it was just to walk into any winery and not feel intimidated, how, how welcoming people were, how truly open, how easy it was to meet the winemaker themselves. So that became fascinating for me. And we moved up here, and I covered the industry, and it was just easy to get in and just talk to people. So the barriers broke down, uh, and I asked to cover that industry, and I did a lot of news reporting on it, and I liked it, and it was a lot of fun for me. But I, I wasn't necessarily all that educated about it. And went to Kansas City to visit my friend Darren Mark, who used to be a morning reporter at Channel 13. Darren's got a much better palate and much more traveled than I am. And he had, we had a bottle of Cintarelli. Cintarelli, uh, Giuseppe Cintarelli was this winemaker in the Veneto in northern Italy. The kind of guy who, amidst a Disneyland world of, you know, high wattage labels and blah, 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 his is like this child wrote the name by hand on a, on a, on a <laughs> scrubby brown piece of paper. And if you knew where his estate was, you could drive down the stone road and hope he was there. And Darren had met him before, and I'd never met him, and then he died recently. But he made Amarone, and we had an, uh, an Amarone in, in Kansas City. And it's funny now, because Amarone is a huge wine, and it's not sort of my jam. But Cintarelli was amazing. And I, rem- I can tell you what the light in the room looked like, the art on the wall. I know the music that was playing. It was David Gray, Say Hello, Wave Goodbye. That was the song that was playing at the time. And we sat there and we listened to a little more music. We listened to Ray LaMontagne. And I went, I've never had anything like this. I didn't know wine could do this. It blew me away. And I realized how wine is sort of suffering from homogeneity, how, how similar most wines are. It's easy to make technically clean wines these days. But everything sort of tastes like everything. So red wines taste like red wines, and you know Chardonnay tastes like Chardonnay, and you know mass-produced red wine tastes like mass-produced red wine. But then when you find something that has soul, you go, "Oh my God, this is so much more!" And how the hell did you do this? <laughs> like, what happened here? And I was in. That was it for me. And I wanted to know the stories, and I wanted to understand, and that lit the fire. See, that's fascinating. It's. It's it's such an such a different experience. I come at so many things from a technical aspect. It, it's weird tackling it from a from I an like ins- the technical, by the way. Yeah. I mean so you so you're saying you're a technical guy. Yeah. You want to know the technical Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. But for me it's like I, I came into drinking later in life. I came I started at twenty seven. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> can well, I open another beer, by oh, the way? God, <laughs> God, yes. Please. <laughs> Here we go. Go ahead. Go ahead. Here's wait, wait, wait. Put it right up to the mic. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. We're, I have no fingernails. This is hurting me. Oh, yeah. that was beautiful. That was a good one. Yeah. Um, so for me, it came came much later in life. <laughs> and at the point where I started, I was already I was already a snob, you know? So I, I, I didn't come in drinking the bad stuff and evolving along. Yeah, like binge drinking in yeah, you know, the I, early I, age. I never yeah. got into it. The so natty ices of the world, right? And because I already had a local bent when I was starting to get into wine at all, like the first interesting wine I ever had was I was at a Nickel City Chef event in Buffalo, um, run by my my friend Krista Granny Seishu. She uh, was the editor of Buffalo Spree for a long time. Oh, cool! Yeah, um, but she runs this uh, Iron Chef like event in Buffalo called Nickel City Chef, and they had Leonard Oaks Winery there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Serving wine, and they had this 2012 Meritage, you know, blend, but it had earthy mushroom notes. And I'm like, oh, this isn't just fruit. Yeah, there's some interest here. There's com- there's complexity. There's yeah. something different here 
And that was the first one that grabbed me. And like, oh, okay, there's something for me to look for, something different for me to grab onto, not just, oh, it's red. I got that. It was that that through note, that yeah. earthy mushroominess. I'm like, oh, wow. I've never found this, this in a line before. This is fascinating. There's something different here. There's something soulful. Yeah, Robert Parker sort of turned the wine world. I don't want to. Parker acolytes, don't come at me with this, but I'm telling you, Parker in, in, in the 80s, the end result of Parkerism, I'm sorry, but the legacy is red wine should not taste like Bob Evans compote syrup. <laughs> and if it does, it should not be 98 points. So explain, explain who Parker is. Uh, Robert Parker is an American critic, um, probably the most powerful critic ever. He came to fame because he called the 1982 Bordeaux vintage. And by that, I mean, he was the first out of the gate to say this is like maybe the best in this century. Mm. And, and it was. I mean, it, it, if you can find 1982 Bordeaux today, it's still drinking beautifully. So Parker makes this fame and gains this power, creates the wine advocate. He becomes this critic, and people start trusting what he says. He nailed that one. I'm oversimplifying, and somebody's going to correct my history. But the bottom line <laughs> is, Parker comes to power, and he likes big wines. He likes wines that are low in acidity, high in alcohol, very fruity, very jammy, wines that taste like, yeah, blueberry compote syrup on your Sunday morning Bob Evans pancakes, for my taste anyway. Senequanon, bullshit like that from the West Coast here. And... California scores start going up. French winemakers start saying, well, now we need to do that. So they mm. sort of California-ized their wine. All of a sudden, 12.5 alcohol doesn't exist anymore. Everything's 14, 14.5. And, and it just became this gloppy soup of homogeneity. I know I am um, being a little unfair, but I don't think that was good for wine. I'm not a purist. I'm not necessarily like everything has to be natural winemaking and uh but I, I think there has been a pushback in the other direction, which is really healthy, especially for the Finger Lakes. I mean, I think people are finally appreciating that. Well, I think it's so. I think that's a great, great way to pivot onto a few. I don't want to, you know, rehash the whole book because that's sure. that's a bit much. But um, I think the one of the big through notes of the whole thing was Finger Lakes as an identity. Finger Lakes cold climate. Uh, embracing the aromatic white wines that we make probably the best, um, and embracing the Finger Lakes for what it is and what we can do the best. I think that was one of the interesting through Absolutely. notes of the book. Yeah, yeah. This is a this was a region in, a, in an identity crisis. So here's where the subtitle of the book comes in that I am proud of. It is the coming of age of winemaking in the Finger Lakes, and what I mean by that is when you finally know who you are and you're not trying to be anybody else, and you know what you do well. And that is your identity. I remember in you know 2005 going to Finger Lakes wineries and, and they would say, well, our topography is a lot like Germany's. That's why we make Riesling because the best Germ Riesling in the world comes from Germany. And this Cabernet Sauvignon is a lot like Napa. First of all, no, it isn't. And second of all, <laughs> thank Christ it isn't yeah. because we're not Napa. And why are you growing Cabernet? So... Um, there was this identity crisis, trying to do everything, please everybody, and, and make everything else your benchmark. Instead of saying, damn, we are proud of what we do. We do this really, really well, and we're, gonna, we're going to hang our hat on this. The region has finally gone in that kind of direction. And that's still, I mean, that's still sorting itself out on the red wine side. But it's just been fascinating to see that identity and that pride come into play. And now... You, you go to some Manhattan restaurants, and the Finger Lakes is sort of a secret handshake kind of a wine. And by that, I mean, you know, it's cool. There are people who will see the Finger Lakes on the list, and, and it's what the Loire Valley has been. It's what's been, you know, a number, the Jura, a, a number of places that are, damn, that's cool. You got Finger Lakes wines there, you know, and that's pretty special to see that. Yeah, and it, it seems like there's, you know, people are sticking around. People are coming here specifically, and people are sticking around. Yeah. I mean, the big name, obviously, one of the big names right now is, you know, people always talk about Christopher Bates, everything he's doing, yep. and how much he's pushed that stuff in New York City. Um, but isn't that fascinating that somebody like that stuck around and is trying to influence major areas to look at how exceptional 
and unique our area can be. Yeah. Right. Christopher Bates, by the way, is behind FLX Table in Geneva and the FLX Wienery, mm-hmm. which is awesome. It is awesome. Uh, burgers, hot dogs, salted caramel, uh, salted caramel pretzel milkshakes, and a bunch of super juvenile T-shirts that hang on the wall with, <laughs> with like... <laughs> Can I say dick jokes? Oh, there? God, yes. I don't know what I can say. Please. I mean, but but they everything. are. I'm just trying to be descriptive on what they are. Anything and everything. That's what they are. Uh, no, it's, uh, and it, you know, it's, it takes the pretentiousness right out of there. Yeah. Um, so, but no, he is, uh, he's, okay. he is the kind of person who views standards as never high enough and always pushing higher. So, and he's, he came back here. You know, he married a woman from Europe. He, Worked in in high end industry spots in the United States and Europe, and chose to be here. So he's sort of the food side, and he's also the wine side, Element Winery. But he's sort of that food side that kind of dovetails with the winemakers who, you know, are here and want to be here, as opposed to like, well, when you do well here, you can graduate and maybe you can go somewhere else. You know? Yeah. When I I do have to say I I got a chance to, um, you know, if we're talking about getting some of those cool visits. Um, I got a chance to go down and uh, taste at Element with his dad. Ooh, that's very cool. I've, I've not had a chance to do anything and, like that. Man, it was fantastic. But I think it's, it's sometimes it's hard to separate from the experience, and that sometimes I find that. You, know, you, you can, I thought, one, everything was fantastic, but two, sometimes it's that experience, the whole circumstance around when you're visiting, you know, pulling samples from barrels and doing all that stuff. It's, it's got this whole thing to it when yeah. you go there and yeah. you're in the room. Yeah, you've got this confirmation bias. You want to like it anyway. Oh, God, yeah. And you've got this beautiful moment and, you know, damn, I took a bottle home and like, oh, it was good, but it didn't really do it for me. No, I mean, and I'm not saying that about element. Right. But sometimes in wine that happens. And what you're describing is just human nature. Yeah. When you're in that setting, it can be really special. Um, but I also think that when you're in a region that has an identity and figures out what it does well, you're much more likely to have that experience. But then you take a bottle home, and the next time you open it, you go, I remember. I'm back there. You know I mean, like I, I, I can open a few Barbaresco and, and, and things like that that make me feel like I'm, I'm in Italy again. And the Finger Lakes is doing that now. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, that, that's a... That's very special. Is his dad? His, what was dad, what, what, his dad runs the day to day at the winery. Um, Christopher Bates, tell me these things. I don't know these things. Yeah, and it was. I, I That's met awesome. Him, I met him at the um, what was it the the big saver event that was at the um, over near the Jazz Fest site, and I think I met him there that day, and I just emailed him and said, "Hey, I'd love to stop by and check things That's out." Cool. That's cool. Um, I, I don't think many people actually bother. By the, way, ask. by the way, Christopher Bates would be like, get off your ass and come do this. <laughs> like, that's my fault. Yeah. Totally. And, but, and, and, you, and you asked, and, and all of a sudden he's accessible, and you have this great experience. Yeah. And it's like, I'm, I'm rounding around him. I'm, I've, I've you know, been in contact with the people over at the Wienery and yeah. his dad. Uh, I'm rounding around Christopher Bates, and eventually I want to talk Did to him. Did you go to FLX Table yet? I haven't. I'm excited. Uh, me neither. We I'm should ex- do it. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, I love it. My, my friends went, I think... I think they tasted a 1929 wine as part of their tasting. Yeah, they. Um, he has a wine flight he calls Big Pimpin. Yeah, yeah. For like $150. Oh. And Big Pimpin always has old California, French, uh, you know, historic stuff. Yeah, he's super, super serious about that. So let, let's talk about old wine for a second. Yeah. Um, it was one of the things, like, I've been talking to people randomly about aged wines. Um, as I'm, I'm, I'm a neophyte, I'm learning a little bit here and there. And I had a couple sommeliers from the new, um, from the dinner we went to, um, out at, oh, wow. Am I really forgetting the name of the One place? Main Leroy? Yeah, yeah. So the guy, the Farmer's Creekside Tavern and Inn, um, I had a, a couple of the sommeliers over and we talked, we talked wine. They brought over a 1990 Riesling from Germany, mm-hmm. from the Rheingau region of Germany. I had an aged Riesling for the first time. Yeah. And different animal when it's got that so age. interesting. Yeah, yeah, and the first thing that brought into my mind was, God, I wish we had more of those around here. 
Yeah, I mean, for a while, everybody sold everything they made until it was gone. Yeah. Nobody even set anything aside. And why would you? I mean, you got to sell everything you can to make the money, and people have no ex- expectation of laying wine down. So this idea of old wine tasting, people around here did not care about that. That has changed. The best winemakers now are, are setting aside cases of wine for library tastings, for future consideration, just to see what happens to it. Because how, the, how do you know if you don't have it? Well, I have had, probably on four different occasions now, I'm just going to I'm not a big fan of saying, like, the best wine, the best wine ever from a region. Right, right. But whatever, I'm just going to do that, because that's how I feel. <laughs> the best Finger Lakes wine I've ever had is the 1999 Weimer Late Harvest Riesling. And I've had it on multiple occasions, it is jaw-dropping, but it's also the rock of Gibraltar. I think there are seven bottles left in existence. Fred Merworth and Marisa Merworth, who, who own Weimer, had a group down recently, and uh, one of their assistants pulled a blind bottle, and he brought it out. Oh, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus here. <laughs> Somebody at the table, and it wasn't me, thought it was a 2009 uh, no, no, I take it back. I I think they were guessing it was like 2012. I mean, like super fresh and recent. Yeah, right? yeah. And it was the 99 late harvest. It had barely moved. And we're going, oh my God, this is an 18-year-old wine. How much of this is left? It's like seven bottles. Seven bottles mm. in the world left of this. Um, yeah, it's that's the best Finger Lakes wine I've ever had. And I've had it four different times, and every time I'm with somebody who's into wine and I pour that from there, they just can't believe it. And to see it over time. So the neat thing is now we're holding more wine and people are laying it down more, and that is very cool because this region is totally uh, able to do that. We just didn't know it for a while. Yeah, and it's and it's so interesting because I've among the places that you listed in the book are places that I've recently, I don't want to say discovered, but they're places that I was experiencing for the first time before I read the book. And I'm like, oh, wow, he covered some of these places that I've been to recently that I was, I was, I learned so much about them. Like I've been to ravines recently. I'm yep. like, oh, I really liked everything they did. I thought it was just rock solid from top to bottom. You didn't know that the French mafia was part of the story. No idea. <laughs> yeah. No idea. That's an amazing story. But I mean, that's an amazing. Well, story. what a fascinating thing to learn. Hey, and I found like, hey, out of you know some of the big wineries, like Fox Run's a big winery. Yeah, it's it looks big. Everything about them's big, but they're still doing some really good stuff. Yeah, Peter Bell is 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 a genius, and, and I, that is not a word I would use if I did not mean it. I think he's a genius. Well, I think that was the interesting part about it for me was how you still dove into the fact that hey, he has to he produces all these different styles all these different kinds of wine that Fox Run sells. It's not a it's not the hipster restaurant that has a half page menu. Sure, right. And maybe that's not what I want, but for all the things they are doing, it seems like they're doing a really solid job. Yeah, they are. And and Peter is the guy who could make good wine out of your shoe. Yeah. He is so important for this region. He is the kind of person who just has raised the standard and has helped so many people. And he is, I, I think he's probably a genius. He is the kind of person who intimidates me intellectually, but then he's such a kind person that he never lets on to when he's disappointed in your lack of intellect. <laughs> <laughs> so, Peter, if you're listening, thank you for that. That's very yeah. kind of you. Um, but this region has benefited so much from someone like him. And uh, it, that, was an easy, that was an easy choice to write about someone like Peter. Yeah, well, and I, I liked you know the transition from Peter to um, oh I'm going to get the name Trisha Renshaw. Yeah, and I thought that was it was interesting to get that completely different perspective from the experience from that technical that technical comfortability like we talked about to somebody to that a just savant. Has, yeah, somebody has that natural gift. I I say it about the wife often. She's naturally better at everything I do than I am. She has a better natural palate. She's a better natural writer. She's a better natural speaker than I am in a lot of ways. 
but it's the sometimes it's the person that drives, you know, that has that technical drive that just figures it all out. And yeah. sometimes sometimes you're just a natural. Sometimes it just works. Yeah, and that was Trisha, age, age 35, just looking for something in her life and ends up, you know, in Fox Run and and you know, just sort of desperate. It seems like she likes wine and she's working on the bottling line and the bottling line breaks down. She's got nothing to do and Peter says, "Well, I'll just go taste some samples in my lab, port samples of all things." And she had never seen a tasting note. So like, well, what are you going to write about wine if you've never seen a tasting note? You don't know what you're supposed to do. This is not your world. And she's got like, you know, I was at 10 or 12 samples and and she starts writing tasting notes that have these nuanced characteristics. So she smells the wine and she tastes the wine. And what she was smelling were things like orange peel, clove, mincemeat pie. <laughs> and then she starts being like, well, I taste that, but then it evolves in my mouth to something else. She shouldn't know how to write like what the finish <laughs> was, so she wrote actual arrows. And Peter thought it was some sort of a come on or, or, or some sort of a put on, like, you are bullshitting me. Yeah. You're in the industry. How long have you been in the industry? It was not. No, she was a savant. She's, yeah, she's, she's amazing. I, I she's find that, I find tasting fascinating. And I find some things really challenging, some things a lot easier. Like, I found beer to be more approachable from a tasting perspective. I get it a little easier. Coffee, I find really difficult. Um, so pick up the nuanced flavors. Yeah, yeah. I find it yeah. very challenging. Yeah. Um, Tony at Fuego. Shout out to Tony Cologne. I love talking with Tony. Yeah, he, I mean, he is a tremendous taster. He is. And as much as I feel comfortable about talking about wine... Tasting is not all that different in coffee. I mean, there's a pretty similar set of component flavors th- that are pretty common. And I still watch Tony and I'm going, you are amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're just, it's amazing. And, and, and I don't think he's BSing. Yeah, I don't I, I, don't I know either. he's not. Yeah. I've, I've sat with him way too many times to think he's BSing anything he's doing. Mm-hmm. And it's weird. I think the thing that intimidates me is about writing about coffee. I, I I know a fair amount about coffee. I'm not an expert. I know a fair amount. I yeah. taste a bunch of coffee. I drink a lot of it. Purely from an enjoyment sense. But anytime I try to sit down and write about coffee, I never feel like I can write about it properly. I'm not sure. I mean, this is more just a statement out of my head than anything else. Is I probably know, I'm I'm probably a casual expert in coffee. Or pretty close to it. But anytime I think about writing, I'm like, oh, geez, I really don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and I could probably write technically better about coffee than other people. But I never feel comfortable writing about it because I know I don't know as much as, you know, Ben Turiano or or Tony or Rory Van Groh over at Ugly Duck. I yeah. know I don't know as much as them. So I, I feel like I shouldn't bother writing about it. You and, know? You, and that's how you feel. So imagine you're Trisha Renshaw who's got nothing yeah. that even tells her that what she's... You're reasonably comfortable saying, you know, you're not an expert on coffee, but you feel a, a pretty solid foundation. You're just not really comfortable writing about it. Trisha didn't even know that she had a gift. Yeah. It, it, that's really something, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That, that story, it, it's amazing how many people still come to me and say, I love this book, and my favorite story was Trisha Redshaw. It's hard for it not to be in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, I think I wanted to touch on a couple of the the crazy people in the book. Crazy people. Which those are the people I enjoy the most in the world, by the way. And I say it in the most affectionate way possible. It's um the true eccentrics in life. Mm-hmm. There's so few yeah. that you meet that aren't again, they're not put ons. These are people who are the true eccentrics, the true oddball people you meet in the world that add this frenetic color <laughs> to the world that you're in. Um, and I thought that, um, was that uh, Sam Argent Singer? The, the Sam Argent Singer, yeah. I mean, that's, when you read about him, you're like, oh, I got it. He's a weirdo in the best possible way. The best possible way. The late Sam Argent Singer. Oh, unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, Sam died too young. And um, I don't know that I can talk about the circumstance. I, I don't know if I... Sam was a was a, an amazing guy. Yeah, and um, 
His family is making sure his vineyard, he's a grower on the southeast side of Seneca Lake, his family is making sure his vineyard is going to continue in that vision because it mattered so much to him. And uh, the Argetsinger family is this sprawling family that has lawyers and judges and race car drivers and fashion writers and Sam, who <laughs> learned to speak Iroquois and, and had such a, an appreciation for Native American culture that when I met him, I did not know if he was Native American or not. He's not, but he, he spent a lot of time actually learning the language, the customs, the traditions. We would bring other writers into the Finger Lakes, and they would meet Sam Singer. <laughs> His vineyard site itself was a fa- it, it is a tremendous site on the southeast side of Seneca. So the Finger Lakes doesn't do Grand Cru vineyards the way Europe does. But if they did, Singer Vineyard would be in there. It's, it's just tremendously situated. Sam was a, an, an outstanding grower and fascinating guy in how he looked at the land. That came a lot from the way he was informed by Native American customs and, and practices. And he would tell stories to groups of writers about um, Native American stories and histories. And and I'm very sort of, uh, I would never accuse Sam of appropriation. I I always want to know what's accurate. It's what I was thinking when I was reading. But I've talked to Native American friends. Yeah. And they've watched YouTube videos of him telling stories. And they go... Yeah, yeah, that, that's pretty much that's the story. You know, and, and you're laughing. I mean, yeah. he's amazing. Yeah, he was he was amazing. It's weird how you read that. I bet if you if you read that 15, 20 years ago, you know, if that book was fifteen twenty years ago, I would have read that completely differently. Now, I I treated him as somebody who was authentic, who was living the way he thought was the best he could do. Yep, and he was being respectful and everything else. That's how I read it. Yeah, and that's how it came across. But in the back of my mind, because it's now, because it's 2017, I still had in the back of my mind appropriation. Yeah. And, and it's and weird how much it's, it's I mean, yeah. it, it, because it's the reality of today. Sure. How much that's in the back of your mind still. Yeah, but Sam learned it directly from people who he sought out and, appre- and, and, and created relationships with. Yeah, so now Sam was the real deal. He was a tremendous grower and his... Legacy is going to be one of the great vineyard sites in in this region as long as grapes are grown here. Yeah. I think the other one that you didn't really dive into, he wasn't a main topic of the book, but was this guy that popped up in these random tastings and was just, he just threw out these brutalities and I loved every second. Yeah. Every second he was in the book, I loved it because he showed up and it was just like, oh, he just he threw haymakers every instant that he was in the book, and it was great. I loved it. Bob Medill is a Canadian who has um, done a lot of world travel. He is connected to a number of Finger Lakes wineries, Sheldrake Point uh, for the for most prominently, but also Red Newt now. And um, Bob is a very serious taster and is very knowledgeable, but about wines from around the world, which is important for a region that's kind of getting its its bearings. You have to have people who have context. You can't just be myopic. But Bob is unafraid to be a little prickly at <laughs> times. And I've seen some pretty interesting moments at times. And Bob, if you're listening, I love you, man. <laughs> um, th- don't get the wrong idea about Bob. Um, but, but, but yes... He is colorful in that way, and the region needs people like that. I think so too. I think that's it's an important part about being being cohesive as a region, whether it's in the food scene, whether it's a drink scene, is we we can't just celebrate that we're trying. Yeah, exactly. I, like everything's great. Everybody's awesome. You know, it's all equally great. Like no. No, I, I think we fall into we that. We need high standards. Yeah, we fall into that in a lot of ways, yeah. and I'm, I'm sure you see it. And you, it's hard. You can't comment about it during your day to day shows, but you hear it. And I, I mean, I can comment on it because you know I'm listening to these things. But I find it interesting when I I listen to, you know, I'm I'm part of the younger generation, 
but it's some of the some of the rah rah. Rochester's great because it's Rochester, not for any particular reason. Or Finger Lakes wines are great because they're Finger Lakes wine, not for any particular reason. Yeah, I, I I'm an evidence guy. I want I I want to. Oh, you're still I, one of my lines. I love that line. That's I, me, man. I love yes, yes. I love a lot about where we are. I love I'm I love learning about the Finger Lakes wine. I love what some people are trying to do here in Rochester on the food scene. I like the people are trying to change Rochester. But just because just because we're here doesn't mean it's great. I agree. And 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 one of the things I have not liked is since my book came out, people will say, Boy, it's great to have a booster like you for the region. Or a supporter. Yeah. And I always say, I'm sorry, but I'm a journalist. And I chose the dozen or so stories that I thought were absolutely worth telling, high quality in terms of production, but also personal stories. But there's 120 bonded wineries. There's a lot of crap out there. Oh, yeah. And, and just objectively speaking. Now, there's not flawed wine like there was 25 years ago. The wine is really technically sound. You don't find a lot of bad wine. But when I say crap, I just mean... I, and, and I'm not disparaging the industry because that's true in the Loire Valley. It's true in Beaujolais. It's true in Bordeaux. It's true in Napa. Every region has that, has mediocrity. So I, you know, it's not the case where any winery you go to, you're going to find greatness. You'll find a lot of goodness or okayness, uh, which is good. I mean, that, that, that's a nice thing. But yeah, I'm not a booster. Yeah, uh, I try to be a, a, as objective as I can be. While I'm, a, I, I root for the region. I have no problem with that. But a booster is something different. A booster is everything's great, everybody's awesome, and that's just not the case. Yeah, I think it is an important distinction. And coming from a reviewing background, I can't abide by that. Yeah, I agree. It doesn't. It doesn't work for me in my head. A um, couple of notes on wine, and then I'll probably take a break because we're going. Um, I got a question from one of my regular listeners um, and online people, uh, Seymour, um, he's asking how much progress has the area made since the book was written? Mm-hmm. Um, second part was, do you think Rochester eateries are taking proper advantage of the region's wines? I think those are intertwined as I, yeah, questions. Th- th- very good questions. Um, so let's just hit this in a couple of ways. Um, the progress since the book came out, which was 2011, is twofold. One of the ways that a region progresses is to get out of its own little shell. And a lot more cool places, Manhattan, Boston, Chicago, the Finger Lakes is in that scene now, much more commonly than it was. Not everybody, again, 120 wineries. I mean, but but the top tier is there. It's respected. It's known. It's not weird or it's not unknown. That's a big part of the progress. And then, if I were rewriting the book today, there would be a number of chapters of wineries that, uh, and wine producers that weren't there before. Forge, for example. You know, there's a number that I would love to write about. And I've thought about going back and adding more. And that's just... Um, so the top tier has grown a little bit in really interesting ways. So I would say the last half dozen years have been really good for the region in that way. Now, in terms of eateries supporting, you're never going to have Rochester be like it is in Chablis, for example. So Chablis is, um, it's not just a box wine. Chablis is an actual (laughs) French region, and it's, for my money, the best Chardonnay in the world. And I just spent two days in Chablis a couple years ago. And when you go to Chablis, you go to restaurants, you can buy Chablis. Or you can buy Grand Cru Chablis, or you can buy Premier Cru Chablis. That's what you can buy. That's all you get, and that's you know that's great. You're there. Rochester's not going to be that way for the for the Finger Lakes, but there certainly could be a lot more. And how do I think Rochester eateries are doing right now? Not very well. I think people are not up to date. Uh, I think the lists are scant, um, and I think it's uh, it's still a problem. And I'll always bring up the example. That's a generalization, by the no, way. No, and I, I tend I tend to agree with you. I mean. I've noticed it more. Um, 
my friend, uh, Mr. Michael Warren Thomas. Yeah. The owner of the most NPRE voice that oh, has the best, ever been. The best. Michael Warren Thomas, the best radio voice. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, it's great. Um, but his insanity about verifying everybody's wine lists. Uh, I'm not sure you, he actually traveled to Albany not that long ago, went just into the restaurants to look at the wine lists and left and took notes on all the different restaurants he went to. Yeah, and Michael has been... I, I love him. ...absolutely trying to push regional restaurants to carry more, to at least carry a certain threshold, to consider it. And um, I think even... Uh, I bet you it's been a couple of years since he started that project. Um, I think it could be a lot better. I, I think we I think we owe it to... We were part of a region. I mean, yeah, we we everybody talks about. Do you about care it about your regional identity? Yeah, yeah, and I think we have to. But but we're not a we're not asking restaurants to do this as a charity project. No, God no. This stuff is good. And and why why if you can't pair a good finger wakes riesling with your food, I'm not sure what you're yeah. doing. What are you making? Right. I mean, what wouldn't be benefited by some even like the solid basics, just good acidity. Like dry, awesome, pleasant wines. There's a few things. I mean, Rice Krispies, <laughs> fried anvil. Mmm, that sounds delicious. Uh, but otherwise, Riesling, <laughs> otherwise Riesling is going to go. Yeah, um, yeah. And it was it was weird. Um, you were talking earlier today about your um, American food culture um, episode of your summer of food. Yep. And you're talking to the one of the the chef at. Uh, Fox Run, uh, Brett Bre- Holland. Brett Holland, yeah. Who's, I actually met him a few weeks back. We were sitting at um, um, the Mexican restaurant in Canandaigua and talking about all this kind of stuff. And the reason I was talking to him is I had actually met Scott Osborne, the owner of Fox Run, a few weeks back in another event. And I was fascinated to hear about his experience with local restaurants, not just in Rochester, but around the wineries and how he had to push them in such direct ways to even carry Finger Lakes wines. And these are restaurants around the wineries. Um, I thought it was fascinating. And this was a, a while back, of course, but to hear the struggle that like he and other wineries went through at that time yeah. to try and get the absolute local restaurants to carry their stuff was almost shocking to me how, I mean, they eventually acquiesced, but they were almost recalcitrant in how much they just, they they, they wouldn't do it. And it's, it, it kind of boggles the mind I think when you're in that area. I think if you go to most restaurants, it's the most predictable mass-produced distributor list, and you are paying marked-up prices that are, Almost theft. Yeah. And there's nothing really interesting, and we're just missing this opportunity. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've covered the book. Okay. So we're going to stop for now and probably come back. Don't Come back. We're coming back. Come back. Come back for more. And more podcasts there will be next week. Uh, Come back next week for part two of my talk with Evan Dawson where we dive more into his career in broadcasting and I interview Evan Dawson about interviewing, um, stealing that idea from Jesse Thorne from the turnaround. Uh, (laughs) So come back next week. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it out on social media. Uh, Make sure you tag me food about town on Facebook at Stromy, Twitter and Instagram and tag Evan as well at Evan Dawson on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening to this one, and stay tuned for next week. It's just as interesting as this week, so thanks so much.